0: We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Animale.
0: Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and streamed live via the 3CR website, where recent podcasts are also available. All podcasts are available from iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and in today's show... We're talking about meat and climate change with Jared Wedderburn Bishop and Judith Friedlander. Jared's from Beyond Zero Emissions and he's one of the brains behind the land use plan that BZE released last year. Judith's from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology Sydney and she's been looking at effective communication for sustainability. First up, some good news from the Japanese Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or JAZA for short, which comprises approximately 150 zoos and aquariums. Jazza has voted to no longer procure dolphins from the annual Taji Dolphin Hunt. Jazza was given a choice by the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, also known as Waza, to either stop purchasing dolphins from Taji or have its Waza membership permanently suspended. Jazza made the decision to stay with Waza. After years of pressure from a variety of animal advocacy groups, Waza ruled that the Taji hunt is cruel and made the decision that none of its members can purchase dolphins from Taji's Dolphin Hunters.
2: Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming
1: here because they offer vegan food.
2: Hi, my name's Paul. I've,
1: this
0: is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious.
1: <laughs> Friends of the Earth Food Co op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
2: Tune to 3CR 855 On your end If you just tuned in To 3CR
1: Why would you stay listening
0: Beyond Zero Emissions is a non for profit, Melbourne based organisation that's been busy designing a zero emissions economy for Australia. This includes a set of six transition plans that cover the sectors of energy, buildings, transport, land use, industrial processes, and coal exports. In September 2012, we broadcast an interview with Jared Wedderburn Bishop who was slaving away on the land use plan. The plan was finalised and released late last year, so I've been pretty keen to hear about this final plan, and specifically its finding and recommendations relating to Australia's livestock industry. Jared has formidable knowledge and expertise in the area of Australian ruminant land use and climate change, so I'm just leaving it to him to introduce himself.
1: Until 2010, I was a principal scientist with the Queensland Government Department of environment and resources management. Our job for the previous 20 years was mapping the deforestation in Queensland. When we first started, uh, Queensland had the sixth highest uh, deforestation rate in the world. That reduced dramatically when the uh, tree clearing laws were introduced in 2006, but it's bounced back again now. The the figures for that are, are, are phenomenal. Over that 22-year period, we cleared on average 400,000 hectares per year, which is about, which is over a thousand hectares per day. Uh, most of that, about 60% of that, was remnant or virgin bush, and all, uh, almost all, some 90 to 95% of that clearing was done for grazing or beef production, largely. So to witness that, day in day out. Uh, was very sobering to me. And uh, when when my group produced a paper that excused the Queensland beef industry of its emissions based on the fact that trees were regrowing on that land, I'd had enough of that, so I left state government. <laughs> and um, since then, I've been working with Beyond Zero Emissions and the, an NGO in London, the World Preservation Foundation, and uh, talking and writing wherever I can alongside my uh, my eco-friendly and climate-friendly home design business.
0: Now, I know you had some surprises as you looked at Australia's greenhouse gas data. Can you start by telling us about those?
1: Yes, certainly. We had a lot of surprises when we started digging through the National Greenhouse Gas Inventory. What we set out to do was to do... a a balance to see if we could make the agriculture and forestry emissions carbon neutral. And we started digging and we found that the, well, for example, the the single biggest emissions uh, sector from agriculture is not even listed in the agriculture category. It's actually listed in the land use category, and that is deforestation. You may have heard that until recent years, um, Australia was the sixth largest deforestation country in the world we're a first world country with third world deforestation and actually it's still going on in queensland yeah so there were a few surprises the first one was that deforestation was the biggest single biggest emission category in agriculture and it wasn't even listed in agriculture and and we also found that there's a lot of other agricultural emissions uh, such as carbon monoxide and trapospheric ozone that comes from a mix of gases that aren't included in the national inventory. They're actually uh, listed, but they're not included when we report internationally. We don't include those gases. So there's all these nasty little hooks that we've teased out, and we've, what we've found is that agricultural emissions, particularly, are way bigger than anyone anticipated, and they make up about a third of uh, national emissions, if you look at it, over the standard 100-year Period. But the other exciting thing was that agriculture turns out to be the single biggest emission source for all the short-term emissions. And it's the short-term emissions that may well save us from a catastrophe in coming decades.
0: So what are the short-term greenhouse gases?
1: This takes a bit of getting your head head around. Okay, I'll I'll just uh, give a bit of background on, on gases and what happens in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is the one that's focused on by pretty much everyone. And what happens with CO2 is when we emit CO2, it goes in the atmosphere. In 30 years' time, half of it has been taken out, either by the oceans or the vegetation or the soil. Okay, so half of it's gone after 30 years. But CO2 is is a particularly nasty gas because after 1,000 years, there's still 20% of our emission still in the atmosphere. So CO2 is a gas that can't be ignored. It's a nasty one in the very long term. However, the short-term gases have been pretty much overlooked in the general discussion about greenhouse gases. And that was for good reason. In the early days, there was a lot of uncertainty about those gases, and some of them affected regions rather than the global situation. The only short-term gas that was included in the agreed national greenhouse inventories was methane. And that was considered to be a long term gas even though it's gone on after about twelve years. And it was also considered to be a global thing because it circulates globally. So things like methane and carbon dioxide, they're the gases of greatest concern. However, there's all these other gases that have created about twenty percent of global warming that are conveniently ignored and There's good reason for that, because it was uncertain. But right now, we are more certain about their impacts, and we know that they have a big effect. For example, um, there was a a study by UCLA and Woods Hole Oceanographic Mob came out a couple of years ago. They looked at just two gases. They looked at CO2 and they looked at methane, and this was for, for 2005. They said, what of those gases should we change to get the best impact in 2050. Okay, 2050 is generally considered to be the time horizon when we hit or have passed dangerous global warming. So they said, okay, what gas is more important? And what they discovered was that they could either shut down uh, half of the methane emissions, and that would have the same impact as shutting down 100% of the CO2 emissions by 2050. So. That gives you an idea of the power of short-term gases. We only need to shut down half of the methane. That's equivalent to shutting down all the cars, all the fossil fuels, all the coal-fired powerhouses, the lot. OK, so this has a dramatic impact in the, in the coming decades, right? And it's coming decades that are the most important for our planet. We can't all get the, uh, the Tesla battery pack for our homes on the wall tomorrow. We can't shut down those coal-fired powerhouses. They've got to keep going. But we can do something about methane. And agriculture turns out to be the greatest source of methane, greatest source of carbon monoxide, and following on from that, the greatest source of tropospheric ozone. And those three gases are responsible for, since industrialisation began, those three gases are responsible for 40% of global warming. But in coming decades, they're responsible for most global warming. In other words, what I'm saying is that our figures showed that if you look at this year's emissions and you look at the impact of those over the next 20 years, what we found was that agricultural emissions is responsible for more than half of the global warming. OK, that's from this year's emissions. So that's critical. And if we can could get a lever on that, and change those emissions, which we can quite easily. We've done a breakdown of the sectors and where that comes from. And we can easily identify those small, in the overall scheme of things, small industries that contribute the the lion's share of those emissions. So, yeah, that was the biggest surprise we got, that agriculture is responsible for the short-term gases and, being so, it's going to make a possible get-out-of-jail card globally as well as for Australia. It's a very powerful thing.
0: So what are the Land Use Plan's key recommendations for moving Australia towards carbon neutrality in terms of agriculture?
1: OK, well, first of all, I should say that the, the premise of the report was a spatial uh, GIS exercise. We looked at the continent of Australia. We looked at it in terms of what it produces and we looked at it in terms of the soils, the rainfall, the climate, uh, what can be grown, what is grown, the agricultural outputs. And we did that spatial modelling. And what we came up with was for each uh, regional, small regional area, the the sub-biogeographical regions, we looked at how much of each farm would need to be set aside for for forest to offset the emissions of that farm. And on average for Australia, that's 13%. If we turn 13% of Australia's agricultural land back to forests, we will offset all the agricultural emissions. Pretty much. However, it's the short-term gases that that still are the the important kicker for the next, for coming decades. I'll just drill down and look at which of the sectors within agriculture are responsible for that. Okay, if you look at methane, methane's the big one in in agriculture and by far the largest part of that, about 75% of that, is from grazed beef. Okay, it's the enteric fermentation that they, they it develops in the gut. It's actually some of it is burped out, but most of it enters the bloodstream and it's actually breathed out. Okay, most of Australia's uh, beef is produced in the north of Australia. It's Bos indicus. It's the Brahmin breeds, and because they're eating the C two tropical grasses, they're not, which are not as nutritious as the southern grasses. What happens is that they produce more methane. So. The bulk of our herds are in northern Australia grazing on native pastures and improved pastures. But they produce the bulk of the methane. Now, what can we do to reduce that methane? We can uh, give them hormone growth implants or growth implants, and we can breed for selective, you know, fast-growing species of cattle. And that's exactly what we're doing now, and that's what's been done for quite a while now in the bush. Okay, the, the feedlot emissions, and that's the ones that they're... They talk about having great success with adding uh, oils to uh, and other things to the, to the feed to reduce the methane. Well, <laughs> that's that's a bit of a, a joke, really, because the feedlot beef emissions are only about two percent of the grazed beef emissions. So it's beside the point. So so that's the biggie. The the biggest sector of methane by far is the grazed beef, and that happens on northern pastures. And this is the area that governments get excited about. Is is going to provide beef for Asia. You know, we want to expand that. And, and we have large multinationals coming in and buying up all these grazing companies and, uh, and they, they're surprised when drought hits. But anyway, that's another side of it. The other aspect that isn't spoken about much is the other short-term gas, which is carbon monoxide. Now, very few people would realise that northern Australia in the savannas and in the woodland, the open woodlands and the grasslands, Because it's such seasonal rainfall, in the wet season you get a huge amount of rain, so you get a lot of grass growth. Now what happens is that cattle don't like the old grass the following year, so what they do is burn it. And each year, about half a million hectares of savannas and woodlands and grasses are burned in northern Australia. That's about 100 times the area of the Black Saturday bushfires, and we do that every year or every two or three years. Burn off the old grass so that the new grass grows up and it's high protein green pig, and it's also to stop the uh, what they call woody weeds, which is actually the forest trying to grow back. It's very effective at at stopping um, woody growth, and it's very effective at killing the old grass. It's the single largest source by far of the carbon monoxide from Australian activities, and that carbon monoxide is not even added to the national greenhouse inventory because it's not one of the gases they count. However, it's quite significant. And there's other gases produced through this yearly burning as well. And when we add all that up, and we did this, we added all, all of these emissions and we added uh, the short-term gases and then we did, the, we did the sums a little differently. We said, OK, let's look at their impact over the next 20 years rather than 100 years, which is the agreed time, and see what sectors are the most responsible. And it turns out, that grazed ruminants, that is sheep and cattle on native pastures mostly, are responsible for almost half of Australia's 20-year emissions. That is, what I'm saying there is that if you look at the emissions from this year that are going to warm the planet for the next 20 years only, just, just looking at 20 years, what's going to have the biggest impact? If we stopped grazing beef and sheep, we would stop half of Australia's emissions for that 20-year warming period. Now, that's pretty hard to get your head around. In fact, it's difficult for people to comprehend, so they just sort of put it aside. Let me give you a scenario. If the climate chaos were to get really bad, I mean really bad, everyone globally would be looking at, what the heck can we do with this? Is there some way that we can possibly stop this out-of-control freight train? And you can't. The thing that will have most effect for Australia, as an example, for over the coming 20 years, is to stop beef and sheep production. (laughs) That's a rather remarkable thing.
0: Just stopping for a tea break. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio and that last song was by Californian band Moon Bandits and it's called Property Damage, A Love Story. Now let's get back to Gerard Wedderburn-Bishop from Beyond Zero Emissions. He's talking about the BZE land use plan. Now I understand that most of Australia's meat production is for the export market. So if Australia was to reduce or eliminate its herd... Could that mean that we end up denying a critical source of food to our trading partners, who are often less developed countries?
1: No, look, that's a third as well. It is true that most of Australia's beef is exported, and most of it is produced and exported from the northern beef herds, which are the Boz Indicus herds, uh, rather than the Boz tourist ones that we see down in southern Australia like the Herefords and so on. These are the Bos Indicus herds. Their beef is not as good. What happens is it's turned into what they call industrial beef and it's ground, in other words, it's hamburger mince. And it's sold at a discount because it's a lesser quality. But that's the very sector of the industry that's having the most impact. The cows eating those uh, less nutritious grasses and producing more methane and having to burn every year to create more fodder for these cattle, we have no say in what they eat because they're not in a feedlot. So we can't control that. All we can do is selective breeding and hormone growth implants, which we do already. So where that beef goes is to the more developing nations like China and Korea and North America. It's hamburger mints. uh, Actually, a lot of it goes to the US as well. So we're hardly denying... Uh, poor countries, <laughs> when we say that. There's also another argument that what happens when we breed cattle here and export it is that we're onshoring emissions. In other words, we're having the emissions here in Australia, but we export the product that has no further emissions where it's going, rather than coal, where we export the stuff and they incur the emissions wherever it's burned.
0: So, when you talk about the onshoring of carbon emissions, is that not merely semantics? Carbon emissions don't really know borders, so it doesn't matter where yeah, the no, carbon that, emissions that, are produced.
1: Yeah, that's quite right. That's quite right. But those emissions are in the Australian national inventory rather than another country's. If we export coal and that coal is burned in another country, then that country has to show those emissions. So we're onshoring these emissions. It's it's happening in the most fragile soils in Australia. Just as an aside, there's a very interesting look at what's causing the death of the Great Barrier Reef, and that's been in the news a lot lately. Each year, the the Queensland government produces a reef report, and there's a lot of science behind it now. And the reef's half-dead now, right? When I was 20, I used to work on boats up on the Barrier Reef, and it was just an amazing wonderland. But now it's half-dead. And the reason for that is the fine sediment mostly and some nitrogen and phosphorus fertilisation problems. But the fine sediment's the big killer. And they found that 70% of that fine sediment is coming off grazing lands, off the Burdekin and the Fitzroy River. And that's what's killing the reef. It's not the odd small shipping channel. It's these huge rivers pouring out all this silt. It's a thing called the fence line effect. If you go into any of that country, you can see the family farms. They're the ones with the knee-high grass. And you can see the corporate farms. They're the ones with nothing. This is at the end of the drought I'm talking. So it's dollars. It comes down to just pure dollars. And if they can make a buck, they will. What they do is they flog the land so that when it does rain, the soil is just lifted up and shoved out onto the barrier reef by these coastal rivers. So, you know, if we want to say... What's killing the reef? It's grazing. In fact, the majority of the nitrogen and phosphorus that's also causing the damage is particulate nitrogen and phosphorus, which is also coming from grazing land, not from agricultural sugarcane. So, yeah, grazing is, is very harmful. You've got the northern Australia, you've got uh, onshoring of emissions, you've got all these methane and carbon monoxide and tropospheric ozone, and you've also got them owned by largely offshore companies now the largest Australia producer of beef is a company called the Australian Agricultural Company and it's uh, foreign owned it's about 80%, 90% foreign owned headquartered in Dubai Uh, the biggest firm is a large Indian fertiliser conglomerate but that's happening across the board now these big farms are being snapped up the most profitable uh, market in beef is actually live export and if you look at the, government, the Australian government figures, that produces a, uh, a wonderful return on investment of 3.3%. Yeah, whereas export of other types of beef produces an amazing return on investment of 1%. So, you know, it's just ridiculous what we're doing. Is it a profitable industry? No. Is it producing jobs? Some jobs. Is it trashing the country? Yes. Is it producing a huge amount of emissions? Yes. So there's not a lot going for it, I've got to say.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. Jared Wedderburn-Bishop from Beyond Zero Emissions is telling us about the new land use plan. How is dairy farming addressed?
1: Yeah, look, dairy farming was not a big topic of the land use plan. We found that it doesn't produce anything like the same methane emissions as grazed beef or sheep. But once again, you know, dairy is... And is going to be a significant thing for the future because if you look at the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, the greatest water user in Victoria is actually water that's just sprayed on the pastures for dairy production. That's the greatest water user by far. So if we encounter another great drought, you know, we're going to have to look at those at that again because those water-intensive industries may well be the ones that suffer in the future.
0: The land use plan places a lot of emphasis on revegetation by farmers, but do farmers lose money by sacrificing that land to sequestration? And if meat production is taken out of the equation, could that land then be needed for cropping and horticulture to compensate the economy and for food security?
1: Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And when we were diving down through agriculture and all the statistics and looking at emissions, uh, that was another of the surprises that we got. Most of Australian crops are exported and that's dominated by wheat. But of the crops that are grown in Australia for Australia, 60% of that is livestock feed. So, actually, no, it's 68%. Andrew did the sums again. So two-thirds of the crops that are grown in Australia for Australia for domestic consumption are actually livestock feed. So if we turn away from animal protein towards plant protein, we're going to have plenty of it. If we stopped feeding that feed to animals and ate it ourselves, we could support twice the population we, we've got now. They did a study on a few properties in Victoria that used to be big timber country. This is you know where they have huge amounts of carbon storage in these big tall hardwoods and they found that uh, a lot of the properties that grows on are uh, there's some areas that are quite unproductive anyway. The steep slopes, for example, you get erosion, you get all sorts of problems, and the farmers uh, are quite open to revegetating those areas. In Queensland, for example, where where the big beef producers are, you talk to some of them, and they quite happily turn some paddocks back to, say, Brigolo. You know, the farmers will tell you, that paddock, it just grows and regrows every year. They've got to re-clear it, every three years or every five years. And they'd happily turn that paddock back to growing trees, sequestering carbon, if they got a bit of money for it. At the moment, that money is not looking too great. But provided we get a a good, steady, and dependable carbon pricing system, that may well happen in the future.
0: You hear a lot of farmers' argument. They say much of the land that's being grazed in Australia is not croppable it wouldn't be able to be used for anything other than livestock grazing anyway. Is there truth in that?
1: Absolutely. There's an argument that a lot of people fall back on that. That land cannot be used for cropping, therefore its best use is for grazing, for producing food for people because we need more food for people. If you're talking about exporting to Asia, then that's possibly right. But that land where most of Australia's beef, for example, is produced is very marginal. It's drought-affected many years, you know, maybe two, three, five years out of every ten, it's in drought and cannot support grazing. So you've got a big problem with that. The country itself is not the sort of country that can be grazed year in, year out and produce food for humans. And if we continue to do that, what we're doing is we're trashing the country, we're destroying it. Every time it rains, it pours, and the soil just washes out to sea and kills the reef, etc. You know, the highest and best use of those sort of lands, those marginal lands and the rangelands and the savannah lands, the highest and best use could be strongly argued to be growing trees, growing shrubs, growing perennial grasses. We're considering all these crazy technical solutions to draw down carbon dioxide and right under our noses is this simple solution that if we just stop burning for example or we just stop clearing, nature bounces back so quickly that we will suck down the CO2. That's a rapid change that needs to happen. But it will happen when we come to our senses. And I hope that we still have a, a society that, when we come to our senses. I hope we're not beaten around too much by the change that's on our doorstep.
0: So food security needn't be an issue?
1: Australia grows enough food for about 80 million people right now. Australia produces that much. But I mean, the largest export by far is our wheat. Okay. But even if you looked at what is consumed in Australia, most of what we produce is, is uh, animal feed, not food for humans. So if you looked at a plant-based diet for Australia, our population could grow tenfold and we still have plenty of food to feed the country. The, the cropping in Australia is largely reactive. It reacts to markets. And I think what ha- will happen is if people change what they eat, then farmers will change what they produce pretty much overnight. I remember listening to an ABC Rural program a while back and I were talking about a farmer in South Australia who was growing lentils and uh, he said with each sweep of his harvester it was $5,000 in his pocket. And he was saying at that time lentils were the most productive and profitable crop in Australia. And what we need to do is, is look at non-conventional crops. They're out there for sure, but you know the, the amount of government funding for agricultural research has really dropped in recent decades, and uh, that support has pretty much gone by the board. So you know we need to stimulate that sector of the agricultural production to look for the future, because if we want to support the uh, coming population, global population, if projections are to be achieved. The world needs to produce as much in the next 50 years as it has, that's food, as it has in the last 500 years. So the pressure on food production is going to be enormous. And the UN knows this, and uh, a lot of organisations are now reporting that we must change. It is not possible for humanity to continue the same diet and survive with the population that's on our doorstep. It's just not possible. So, we will change whether we like it or not and to a more plant based diet. That's inevitable. That's generally accepted internationally now. But Australians are a bit immune from that, you know. We have readily available meat and it's cheap. So, we we don't even talk about these discussions. It's just not not on the agenda at all. It needs to be.
0: So, why has agriculture been uh, largely exempt? from much of the government's climate action when it seems to be the number one culprit of climate change?
1: There's a lot of reason agriculture hasn't been focused on very carefully yet. And I suspect that the main reason is that politicians are frightened of uh, being seen to finger the man on the land. Yeah, a lot of people see criticism of agriculture as being criticism of farmers, uh, something akin to criticism of war being turned around to be a criticism of soldiers, which it's totally not. And that's the case here. No politician wants to be seen as critical of farmers because after all, they feed us, they're our heroes. And so most sides of the political divides have left agricultural alone.
0: So is it possible that we're presently wasting valuable time by focusing much of our efforts into reducing fossil fuel use?
1: Yeah, don't get me wrong, CO2 is really important for the longer term and in coming decades uh, we've got to draw that down, uh, which by the way agriculture comes in there as well because see, growing vegetation, trees and shrubs and perennial grasses and turning that into soil carbon, that's about the only large scale and effective and safe way we have of sequestering CO2 that's in the air. So uh, we have that potential as well in Australia. And rather than grow trees, we're ripping them down. Many people think that large-scale deforestation in Australia has stopped, but it hasn't. Since the LNP party got into power in Queensland, they're going gangbusters again. It's, it's back to, in Queensland alone, 275,000 hectares per year, uh, which is about 750 hectares of forest per day. Most of that remnant or virgin bush So deforestation is going gangbusters. Any small elements that we do of reforestation is trivial compared to the deforestation that's happening every day. And agriculture provides that means of sequestering CO2. Uh, You know, trees are, are the best thing we have. It's uncertain, yes, but it's the best thing we have. As far as Australia goes, the biggest single thing that we can do to reduce our emissions in the short term is to stop grazing animals, that is beef and sheep. That's the single thing, biggest thing we can do for the climate. Way bigger than any coal-fired powerhouses or fossil fuels. It
0: would seem to me that, that getting the farmers on board might be the biggest obstacle of yes. all.
1: Yeah, well, the, the plan is actually uh, quite good in that it talks about a, uh, a shared responsibility and it talks about all levels of uh, society can get involved. Not only government, but also the producers and also the consumers. And it talks about what each of those can do. Byron Shire Council have decided that they're going carbon neutral. And they put this committee together. I'm going down there next month to the first meeting, I think. And uh, it's going to look at what needs to be done in each of these sectors to make it carbon neutral. Uh, and more strength for them. You know, it's cities that may well take the incentive in it, and it's great to see.
0: So, how can each of us get behind the land use plan?
1: The Land Use Plan lays out a number of different ways people can get involved. Right from the top, there's government activities that can have a big impact. We look at, for example, the potential of internalising the external costs. In other words, the uh, the cost to the environment that at the moment no one pays. If that were included in the price of the product, then no one would be eating beef, for example. <laughs> but, you know, governments can do a lot. They can put the agricultural emissions in, in a carbon trading scheme, put a price on carbon, that's a big one. But anyone anyone can get involved. And that's that's the very empowering thing of the land use plan. If each individual does their bit to steer away from red meat, they have impacted their personal carbon footprint immeasurably. You, you have more impact from steering away from red meat than you do from giving away your car. It's a very powerful thing to do. But it's not only individuals, it's also the producers. The producers from the plant, they now know that how much of their properties they need to plant back to uh, revegetate, And they also know that those activities on their properties that are the most emissions-intensive. So it gives them a chance to look at, well, if, if I'm serious about my grandchildren, what I do on this farm matters. So what should I be growing? What should I be producing that will have minimal impact and will leave them with a the future? So it's all levels of society. It's from the individual right up to government. But as with all BZE plans, it's an effective plan. It's a plan that will work. It's known technology. Everything is, is black and white. It's all uh, you know, science-based and we know it will work now. But what it will take To happen is a motivated government, motivated community. So, as with all BZE plans, I think what will really happen to act on these plans is when things start getting chaotic. When the climate chaos really hits, and we're starting to see it, but when things get really crazy, I mean, we haven't hit 1%, and look at the climate now, what's going to happen when we hit 2.5%, 2.5 degrees rather, of global warming? What's going to happen to the climate then? What's going to happen to the oceans then? Are we going to have a barrier reef for the future, etc.? Those sort of questions, when it does happen that things turn really nasty, BZE has these series of plans that people can look at and take concrete steps. And that's the beauty of the land use plan. There are lots of actions that can be taken by individuals, producers and governments. BZE is actually hoping to get... It has already got a lot of producers on side. When Andrew Longmire was researching the plan, he contacted a lot of farmers and got involved with a number of them to look at their properties and what they could do on their properties to make them carbon neutral. And so I think a lot of producers will be thinking along the same lines. So it's something we need to promote. It's something that needs to be more discussed in the media. This is the discussion that we need to have. It's a hard discussion, but as a community, as a, a planetary citizen, we need to have these hard discussions. At the moment, it's being pretty much ignored, particularly the land use side. The fact is that what you eat has more impact on the planet than pretty much anything else you do.
0: You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and that track was Be the Change by True Nature. Prior to that, we heard from Gerard Wedderburn Bishop of Beyond Zero Emissions talking about the land use plan. If you want to get a copy of the land use plan, they're available from the BZE website. Just go to bze.org.au and click on Zero Carbon Australia.
1: All your promises have been broken now. Just like writing
2: the same. I'm Jermaine Greer and you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now.
0: Judith Friedlander is a postgrad researcher from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology Sydney. She's been researching effective communication for sustainability with a particular interest in meat and its impacts on the environment. Judith published a paper called A Meaty Discourse What Makes Meat News. Judith, you've been looking at the subject of meat in the media and its tiny bit part in the climate change discussions. Can you tell us about your research?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I was very interested in examining how you get the sustainability message into the media and using a media term, increasing the agenda or enhancing the media agenda. And so I've decided to focus on meat because it was one of those topics that other research had indicated was rarely mentioned. So I did some Australian research and I found that it correlated with other research in that when you do a content analysis of Australian newspapers, you find that some ridiculously small amount of articles dealing with climate change actually talk about meat consumption. So I think I found that just under 1% of all Australian stories in major newspapers relating to climate change mention meat, livestock or something aligned. So it's not the true scenario. Um, livestock production is responsible for around or anything from between 10 and 18%, depending on whether you're looking at Australian or global statistics. So just under 1% is nothing. It goes under the radar. So I was really interested in looking at the reasons for that. And that takes you into all sorts of interesting areas. You can't just look at the media and say, oh, the media is just a reflection of the readers. It's also a reflection of the business behind media. And, and, And it's not to say that there are people pulling the strings and saying you have to write this or you can't write that. It's all connected to the world of advertising and promotion and stakeholders and and where, of course, publications know their bread is buttered or their meat is sourced or however, to, however you like to describe it. There's just a lot of subtle pressures on Australian media and Australian industry in general because so much of our industry and our culture revolves around the eating of meat. When you look at what's being reported in the media, in the major newspapers, it's, I suppose, a function of a number of things. It's a a function of a really pressured media industry. Of course, newspapers are getting thinner and thinner and they're increasingly dependent on the economic stakeholders or the the ones that can support the industry. So perhaps um, unconsciously, when newspapers publish um, editorial, they are very aware of those people who are supporting them. So they're less likely to be running lots of features on Meatless Monday or meat free week or meat free month because they're concerned that the meat and livestock industry are going to come down on them like a ton of bricks and they're not going to advertise with them anymore. I mean I don't think it's a an intentional thing. I don't think but I do think that's something that plays a part. I think that of course what's happening with the media in general and the increasing stratification of media, that newspapers are not as broad based as they used to be. Once upon a time, even ten years ago, there was an environmental section in the Sydney Morning Herald where you could every week you could read about dedicated sustainability stories. That doesn't exist anymore. And as the papers get thinner and thinner, those areas become Less and less, and deal increasingly with mainstream or more conservative news elements. Of course, we could talk about the growth of social media, and social media, I think, provides a glimmer of hope as to you know the potential and what's possible, and um, and trying to get the message out there.
0: What makes meat newsworthy?
2: So, okay, so this. Is an interesting question because now, of course, with the changing nature of media, you have to say what makes uh, newsworthy in traditional media and what makes it newsworthy in social media. Uh, yes. So I've done a study of traditional media and, of course, traditional media is mainstream newspapers such as the City Morning Herald and The Age and I've made a study of those newspapers and basically the certain news frames of things like conflict and the economy and animal welfare are... Uh, are or messages that resonate in those newspaper articles. What was really interesting was that after the Four Corners report that was looking at animal cruelty and live exports, there were a lot of stories about meat around that time. And they basically that was the time that animal welfare and animal, animal cruelty issues came to the fore. But then if you keep studying uh, newspapers about six months to a year afterwards... All those concepts seem to disappear and then the frames change to all oh, the poor farmers are suffering. So that didn't last long, that idea of the animal suffering at all. Um, we, it seems we have a limited attention span when it comes to suffering animals, unfortunately. Of course, when we read about meat, it's generally about the meat industry and then that's why I talk about conflict because it's about the conflict between those who are animal rights advocates and those who are meat industry advocates. And I suppose people who are meat eaters can fall into that area. When it comes to social media, however, uh, we're finding that different messages and different frames can be successful. And what we're trying to work out now is if we can get those frames of meat and the environmental impacts or the animal welfare impacts to transgressive, to broaden beyond the the groups who are affiliated to those people who are more on the fringes, who might be influenced, who um, aren't necessarily as defensive. I mean, you can always preach to the converted. And social media, of course, does that to a large extent, and there's a term called the echo chamber effect. But there is also this great capacity for social media to broaden the group and to meld uh, into broader communities and different agendas.
0: Even the environmental NGOs don't seem to be addressing the issue. Like, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, Cowspiracy, which was an, an American documentary, and the narrator approached many of the big environmental NGOs to ask them why it wasn't being addressed. It seems to be possibly the case here in Australia. Did that... Did that play a role in your research?
2: Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely the case. When I decided that I wanted to research this area, I did approach a lot of the NGOs, a lot of the environmental organisations, um, asking them if I could involve them. And I definitely got that same response that I think they found it was just too much of a hot potato and a lot of these NGOs also are trying to make ends meet and derive income and, and get financial support. And unfortunately, a lot of them too are really frightened to incur the wrath of these you know big stakeholders as well. So they'd rather avoid it and do something that is a little bit easier and more politically correct. I mean, you do have well-known environmental organisations that work with the meat industry, with the Meat and Livestock Association. And look... A lot of them are working to reduce the impacts of meat. So, look, it's a given that you are going to have the meat and livestock industry, which you are, um, that you have to look at uh, what they call mitigation, technological mitigation. But when you look at the research, importantly, the best case scenarios indicate that mitigation can only go so far in terms of the overall reduction of greenhouse gases you can't just rely on improvements to technology to reduce the impacts of meat production on um, climate change on greenhouse gases you have to do it hand in hand with meat reduction
0: do you think meat consumption in australia is tied to our economy at least as a public perception it's tied to our economy and if so is that is that the problem here
2: Look, you know, there have been studies, for example, in countries such as Argentina and Argentina's, I think, meat and livestock industry is even more prominent than here. But definitely where you've got a, a culture and an economy that's tied up very much in those traditional industries such as meat and livestock, it's always going to be difficult. There are a lot of jobs. There are a lot of aligned industries tied in with that. And so, yes, it's going to be difficult to counter that. And one has to have sensitivity to that. But all you can really do is encourage people to move towards other industries and other types of food groups. And yes, let's encourage all these different agricultural industries and support them as well. But uh, the future of this country is definitely not going to be in meat and livestock. It just can't. We, We cannot sustain that. We cannot sustain the impacts with the generating of greenhouse gases and the high use of water that's aligned with it and things like phosphorus, which nobody really talks about. There's a limited amount of phosphorus in the world, meat uses a high percentage of it, and we'd be much better off if we continue to move towards eating more plant-based foods.
0: You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and you've just been hearing from Judith Friedlander from the University of Technology, Sydney. She's been raising the agenda of a very inconvenient message that is the issue of meat and its relationship to climate change. Check this out,
2: man. This, way. this is Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. 3CR's annual radiothon is almost here. At 3CR, we're calling to you to activate the airwaves by donating your money from the 1st of June till the 14th to 3CR's annual radiothon. So keep 3CR active on the airwaves for another year. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, so donate. Go online to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. Let's do it together and support 3CR, truly independent community radio. Yeah!
0: so if this show has piqued your interest on the topic of meat and climate change i recommend you get along and see the excellent new doco cowspiracy and as it so happens there's a screening this wednesday evening in uh, melbourne cbd there's a link to the event on the freedom of species facebook page and it's been advised to book tickets beforehand Otherwise, you can just get along to cowspiracy.com and buy a digital copy there. That's it for today's show. A big thank you to Jared and Judy and to True Nature and Moon Bandits. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and our website is freedomofspecies.org. That's where our podcasts call home. I'm going to leave you with one more Moon Bandit song. It starts here. See you next week. And I'm not going to believe that we have If I keep living like this, I'm going
2: to die on my knees. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.